want to uh, thank Nick Krause for coming today to, to unfold God's word for us. Please uh, stand for the reading uh, from Luke 1, 67 through 79. No, 57 to 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have named him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the fathers, inquiring what he wanted to, him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosened, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that, he, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet feet into the way of the peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'll, let me pray. For us. Father, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the witness of Zacharias and the word that you spoke to him, uh, and we ask that you would speak to our hearts now uh, from your word as according to our need. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. All good. You know, it's it's been such a privilege being here to bring God's word to you guys at it has brought a lot of joy in our hearts, and it's been a joyful time going through Philippians and working through that book. Um, we actually preached my, one of my favorite sermon texts to go to if I'm preaching during Christmas time, which is Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, which is what I did last time. So you're not getting a repeat sermon of something I've done in the past, that's for sure. And... Um, Levi just had an idea that we should take a break during this time and to focus on Christmas, to focus on the incarnation, and we just wanted to bless you guys in that way. And Levi's going to be preaching the day after Christmas, so he's going to get the classic 
Luke chapter 2, the birth of Christ section, the song we just sang. So I wanted to think of how I could compliment that, how we could hear God's word in a way to prepare our hearts for that. And I wrestled with a couple of different Old Testament sects, uh, sections from Micah about the birth of Jesus Christ coming from Bethlehem. Or Malachi, the prophecy where Jesus is going to have a forerunner who prepares his way, and Jesus is the son of righteousness who rises like the dawn upon a dark world. Or Isaiah has like five of them, six of them that we could just read. But it kind of makes the most sense just to read the passage just before. And we're going to actually find that there's a lot of those things in our passage today, in Zechariah's Song of Hope. And the question I really wanted to focus on today, kind of hone our thoughts, was what connection does Christmas have to do with Israel? What sort of connections do we have between, in the scripture, between Israel and Christmas season? Because I think that's going to help us a lot here in just thinking about Christmas in general thinking about this season and what it should represent for Christians if they're focusing on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I think it'll also root ourselves in history. See, when we focus, you know, when we think about Christianity, Christianity is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, all the promises he made to a particular people group called Israel. And what we have in our text today is Zechariah's song. He starts off with, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And he starts painting a picture of what the hope of Israel is. How Jesus Christ and him coming is going to be a fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. And we're going to see today kind of three points of how Zechariah paints this picture of the hope of Israel being really the hope of salvation. And this, these three points are that the hope of Israel, the hope of salvation for Israel is founded by God's hand alone. That God is the one who's going to accomplish the redemption of his people. That's what Zechariah's hope is. And the second thing is that it's done according to God's plan. If God's the one who has to act in history to save, it's going to be done according to his plan, not ours. And then lastly, we're going to look at how God's plan of salvation, how his mercy towards his people is going to be accomplished by his man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So let's dive right into our text. He starts off, I already told you that it says, blessed be the God of Israel. And that first word there, blessed, is kind of a, a signal for what the genre of this song is going to be. If you remember, Zechariah, he had an encounter in the very beginning of Luke's gospel with an angel who told him that he was going to bear a son who was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah did not really believe him for that. And because of his unbelief, the angel wanted to present a sign to him that his words are true. So he was going to be mute until that child was born. So Zechariah has been mute for the past nine months. 
unable to talk. And at the beginning of the time, once he gets home, he finds that his wife, who has, you know, they're both in their old age, Zachariah's a priest, that his wife gets pregnant. And for six months, she confides in herself. So they're kind of alone for about a six-month period, him able to, not able to talk, and her beside herself that the Lord has blessed her with such a great blessing. And about six months into this, Mary receives a prophecy that she was going to bear a son, and not just because she's a miracle of her bearing a child in her you know, with in her old age because she was a young girl. I kind of confused myself there. <laughs> Elizabeth was old and conceived when she never had. Mary never knew anyone, and she found herself pregnant. And she found that her cousin Elizabeth had the same thing happen to her. So what did she do? She went over to her cousin Elizabeth's house. She spent three months with her. She had her probably more famous song, Mary's Magnificat, singing the praises of God, looking on her humble estate and blessing Israel. And she leaves right before the child is born. And that's where we picked up in our reading today. And it's amazing that Zechariah, breaking this silence, his son being born, did you notice something? Zechariah did not really talk about his son John that much. Zechariah's focus instead was on Mary's son. Mary's son who would be the Messiah who redeems Israel. And it's because he's being filled with the Holy Spirit to give God's word at this moment. Looking forward, showing that this is the hope of Israel. He only mentions his son John in two verses, verse 76 and 77. So Zechariah, he focuses not on how God has, in his song, not how God has redeemed his family, not how God has finally blessed them with children. Zechariah does not uh, get caught up in all the amazing family blessings that God has given to him by giving him a son, but rather his focus is on the kingdom of God. And his focus on the kingdom of God is represented in this song. And he goes on, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. And as we go through this song, we're going to see that God is really the one who's at work. God is the foundation of the hope of Israel. The hope that Zechariah is saying is being fulfilled in Mary's child. Just let's explore just a little bit just to see this that he's blessing the god of israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and he has raised up a horn of salvation verse 70 he spoke by the mouths of the holy prophets verse 73 is he's reminded of the fact that god is the one who swore to abraham that he would fulfill all of his promises and I want to skip down just to focus for a moment on verse 78, because God's mercy is the foundation of all these things, of all the hope of Israel. 
All these things, verse 78, is because of the tender mercy of our God. And that word, that tender, it's translated in a couple of different ways. Probably a better translation in English is the heart. It's what's deep down inside. The Greek word talks about the, that God's gut, his, his, his merciful, tender mercy that he feels deep down inside of him. Maybe even God feel, God's merciful deep down in his bones towards his people. This is the reason why they have a hope to begin with. All of Israel's hopes, the underpinnings of it all, is founded and grounded in God, in his word, yes, that God will keep his promises, yes, but even deep, deeper and more core to that is God's loving kindness, God's unfailing love towards his people, that God has not forgotten them, that God will act to save them, that God will send a redeemer to redeem them. Zechariah's song is all about the acts of God. That's where he's pinning his hopes. And just think for a moment how surprising this would have been. God has been silent for nearly 430 years when Zechariah speaks. Malachi was the last prophet who said that the Messiah was going to come and that there was going to be a forerunner in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way. And nothing, God has said nothing for 430 years since that time. What do you think the people were feeling at this time? Well, they would have felt if God had been silent for 400 years, that God had forgotten his promises, that God had made promises to Abraham, that he would be his God and he would be his people and that his seed would multiply and be numerous and be a blessing to all the nations. But where is Israel now in Zechariah's time? They're enslaved by the Romans, and they've been enslaved by others beforehand. They've been taken into captivity. Only one tribe really has their land left as theirs, but not really because the Romans are over them. Flip over with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll get a sense of the feeling of where they are at. Isaiah actually chapter 8 at the very end of Isaiah chapter 8. He talks about his people. Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 20, he says, or verse 19, we can start there. And when they say to you, inquire of mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To teaching, to the testimony If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. 
and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Israel, at the beginning of that, was not turning to God and at the end of their days before they lost their kingship and were sent into exile. At the end there, they were turning to mediums, necromancers, to really anyone in their land besides God. And God had thrust them into darkness because of that. They had no hope. They were distressed. They had anguish. And that's the state that Zechariah is speaking into here. He says that even no dawn at the end of chapter 8, that they had no dawn. They had no light to their path. God had been silent for 400 years, but he had not forgotten his promises. And people like, believers like Zechariah, clung to those that God would act one day to save his people. And that's exactly what he's saying with the coming of the Messiah, what God was doing. Because of that, verse 69, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So if the hope of Israel is grounded and underpinned in God to act, in God to save, on the basis of God's love for his people, his compassion for him, that he has deep down in him, towards him, them, what was his plan to save them? Because they've been waiting for 400 years for God to act. Well, let's look at verse 69. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What was God's plan? Well, God's plan was not to just send Jesus onto the stage with no backdrop, and the Messiah goes out and just dies on the cross, and then rises to death from the dead, and that God had never spoken about that before. God's plan had actually started in eternity past. When Ephesians 1, that God had planned to send his son to accomplish redemption for his people. God, his plan to save was a plan that he had, through, that we've actually seen throughout the book of the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis 3.15, from the very moment Adam sinned and fell out of the garden, God said that from the seed of the woman would become one who crushed the head of the serpent. God said, speaking through the prophets to Abraham, selecting from him, he made him a promise that to him he would make numerous that from him a seed would be born who led to the redemption of all the earth 
not just Israel. And time and time again, throughout history, God spoke through the prophets, little tidbits here and there, giving us details of what we are to expect, what we are to look for in the Redeemer that God was going to send. And it was out of mercy to keep his word to the fathers in the faith, these prophets of old, that he has kept his promise in sending this Redeemer. God's plan for saving his people had the means involved. God's plan to save his people, if you trace the history of redemption, trace the promises of God, they all had the means involved in that there would be a redeemer that he would send who would die for the sins of his people. And not only that, but it would be used His plan was going to be used to accomplish God's purposes. Look down at verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness from all our days. We haven't really talked of we i've said the word salvation a lot but we haven't really defined that have we when the bible refers to salvation it could be referring to lots of different things i could be saved by a firefighter pulling me out of my car in a car accident you could be saved by the bell if bullies are coming up to you to beat you up but then the bell rings and then they have to go to class There's lots of different ways that salvation can be accomplished. But in what way are we focused on here? What is the hope of Israel? What is God's plan? How is he saving his people? Well, he's saving them from their sins. He's saving them from their enemies. Look at verse 74, that we are delivered from the hand of our enemies. God's plan of salvation is to undo the works of the devil. 1 John chapter, I think it's 116, says that Jesus Christ died, that he came to undo the works of the devil. He came to deliver his people out of this darkness that Israel found itself in, being crushed under Satan's tyranny. But it's more than that. Because as Jesus came, Jesus came and delivered a spiritual kingdom. His, his kingdom, his, his kingdom was not of this world, which is what he told to Pilate before he crucified him. Jesus' kingdom was one that redeemed people, yes, from the tyranny of Satan, but not necessarily from the Romans at that instant. Because his people had a greater need. His people needed to have their sins forgiven, verse 77 of our text. God had to rescue, his plan was to rescue his people from the malice of our enemies, from those who hate us, from the world, from sin, from the devil. Jesus saves us from the corruption 
of our sin and the guilt that it imputes to us. And the purpose of that, verse 74, the second half, is for a particular reason, that we might serve him without fear. Think of the last time God was silent for 400 years. It's the time period between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1. 400 years, God was silent. For 400 years, they had a Pharaoh that knew Joseph and then forgot him as time went on. 400 years, God was silent. And what did he do? Well, he acted to save his people by sending Moses. And Exodus chapter 2 ends in a peculiar way. It says that God, yes, he heard the prayers of his people. Yes, he heard their cries for anguish and was reaching out for that reason. But also that he remembered the promises that he made to Israel, made to Abraham, made to Isaac, made to Jacob. And that's why he acted because of his love and because he's kept his word. And then Exodus chapter 3, when he sends Moses, Exodus three sixteen, God commissions Moses, and he tells him that he's to save this people to be a group of people for himself. In particular, to go worship him at Mount Sinai. You see, it was God's grace that he saved Israel out of Egypt But he didn't save them just to be free and to do whatever they wanted. But God saved a people to do this. That they might serve him without fear. That word there, serve, same word for worship. That they might worship him without fear. And I think that makes more sense especially when we get to verse 75, that his people are to worship him in holiness and righteousness. And notice this last one, before him all their days in the presence of God. Holiness and righteousness. Ephesians chapter four says, this is part of renewing of the image of man. That mankind was made in God's image in knowledge, in righteousness, and holiness. And that he has redeemed and set apart a people for himself, redeeming them from the corruption of sin, from the tyranny of Satan, so they might worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why God redeemed them. So God saves a people for himself, and he always has done it this way by his action in history, by God intervening. That's how God works. The hope of Israel is that God will act to save. And the hope of Israel is also planned by God. It's a plan that was set, spoken through the fathers of our faith throughout the entire Old Testament. It's a plan that has a particular purpose in mind to create a people for himself who worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why God has saved us. And the last thing is that God has saved us by sending his man to accomplish 
salvation. We've already seen this, that he's raised up the horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, verse 69. God's keeping his promise to David, by the way. And the horn, the strength of an animal, the strength of a bull is in its horns, the symbol of power, that he has raised up the power to save us. And who is this? Verse 76 is the first time Zechariah is going to speak of his son. He says that, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give them knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God was going to send his man, but he was sending two people. And he was sending two people because that's what he promised that he would do. Malachi chapter 4. This is a good one to turn to, to see another good one. Malachi chapter 4, I'll read it for you. Starting at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I will act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. Verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike you, strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God had promised to send a man in the spirit and power of Elisha to visit his people. And he was going to prepare the way for the Lord, Isaiah chapter 40, that he was going to prepare a way as a path, as a herald before a king announcing his coming. Since God had not spoken in 400 years, he found it as a part of his plan that he was going to send a forerunner to prepare the people to preach to them the need of what? To have a knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. God's people need to be given the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. Wasn't John the Baptist preaching repentance? turning from their sin. John the Baptist was helping, aiding the Messiah, aiding Jesus in preparing the people in their hearts to be disciples of Jesus by pointing out their sin, by pointing out their need for a savior, by pointing out the fact that they might think first and foremost of the tyranny of Satan as the Romans being over them, 
but they have a greater problem. Outside of Christ, we have no hope. Outside of Christ, we are still dominated by our sin. And we are hopeless in this world. What his people need and what we all need is the forgiveness of our sins. I I read a lot of John Calvin in preparation for this. He has like five sermons just on this one song. And he, he affected a lot of my thinking. And this is what he said about the preaching of John the Baptist. He said, there can be no real knowledge of salvation unless we cast off our empty arrogance and recognize that we are full of sin. The remission of sins is a message for the whole church. David cried, blessed is the man whose sin God forgives, whose iniquities are covered. He is not speaking here of the heathen or of idolaters or of those who are spiritually blind. He means himself and his fellows. In effect, the whole company of believers. We all depend wholly on God's mercy. To God's people. If you're trusting in God, you know that his mercy is towards you because he's made promises to us. And if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you know his love is for you. That you've been grafted into this family history. And that what our hope is in Christ is the hope of redemption of our bodies from the power of sin, but also the resolution of this fundamental enmity that we have by nature against God that's true of Israelites too by birth. We're all sons of Adam. We are all have original sin. We have the guilt of sin and we're corrupted by sin. And because of our sin, we are by nature at enmity with God. And what we all need is to be reconciled to him by the forgiveness of our sins. That's what John was announcing. But John wasn't announcing that he was going to result in the forgiveness of their sins. No, he told them to turn and trust the mercy of God who would send a redeemer and behold, the redeemer came. You might've missed it in verse 78 when he brings back up the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. I just read in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, that the son of righteousness would appear. The branch of David would appear to save his people, and he would have Elijah as his forerunner. To give, and what is Jesus going to do? Or what is the Messiah going to do? He's going to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide their feet into the way of peace. Probably should have told you to have your finger in Isaiah, because we're going to read chapter 9, just a small section. So he said that 
They were going to be in the gloom of darkness and God was going to thrust them into a thick darkness. But Isaiah chapter nine, verse one says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of darkness, on them the light has shined. Skipping down to verse 6. For to us a child is born and a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there is no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This is why John picks up on this language and says that Jesus is the light of the world, shining into darkness, a world dominated by sin. And I think from Isaiah prophecy, dominated by hopelessness, by the anguish that sin brings on us, to the feeling that God is at enmity with us and we have no hope in this world. John chapter 8, 14, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. That's what happened on Christmas morning when Jesus is born. Jesus was the dawn of salvation. The light of the world had entered into the world. The very being who created the heavens and the earth entered into his creation for a purpose to redeem it, to redeem his people, to save them from their sins and to make worshipers for himself. There's a word I've skipped over. It's in verse 68, and it's also in verse 78. That the blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he had visited us. Verse 78 The tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise, Jesus, the dawn of our salvation, the light of the world, shall visit us from on high. And in case you don't catch the connection there, John was a prophet of the most high, kind of a euphemism for God. And he uses the same word at the end of verse 78 to say that the sunrise shall visit us from on high, or really from the most high, if you were to translate that word the same in both places. This is the amazing miracle that we're talking about, that we talked about back in Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus Christ, the form of God, took on in addition to himself the form of a man And the reason why he did it was to redeem his people. The hope of Israel has always been this very thing. The hope of Israel has always been a hope that's 
based on and founded on the mercy of our God, his goodness, his righteousness, his love for his people, his love for his created order that he has invested in. The hope of Israel has always been founded on God's mercy, and because it's founded on God to act, it's always been based on God's plan his plan to save his people, one that he had before time began and he's been working out and revealing in bits and pieces throughout human history and is being dawned in this moment 2,000 years ago. And this plan had always in mind the means of how he would accomplish it. How would God accomplish his plan to save his people? Through his man, Jesus Christ. And he's the only hope that we sinners have. We might not be living in a time of gloom, or we might be entering into a time of political gloom, of distress and anguish, feeling like our world is out of control. God has not spoken for 2,000 years. Has he forgotten his promises? Has God forgotten us? No, he hasn't. See, the thing is, is Zechariah is singing of this blessed hope. And this is before Jesus ever came to be on the scene. He was in the womb of, his, of Mary. He got to hear them both sing, hear them both prophesy. But Jesus was not yet born, but he knew his Old Testament. He knew the hope of Israel, and he was sure that whatever it looked like, God would accomplish it. We've seen God accomplish it. We've seen what the links that God went through to save sinners like us. Our hope has been accomplished. Zechariah was looking forward in what God would do. We look back at what God has done, a salvation that has been accomplished. Our forgiveness was accomplished on Calvary. The only thing that we are awaiting now, the hope that we have, is that God will complete the work that he just started. 1 Corinthians 15 describes it this way, that we have seen the first fruits of a harvest. It's like we have a field in front of us that's been planted, and we feel kind of hopeless that maybe God has forgotten us. But didn't you see that first bloom, that first bud on the wheat? That's indicative that the whole field is about to go. That the whole field is going to be harvest season. This world, we've been on it for a long time. We just have a small glimpse of history that we are living in right now, and we tend to be hopeless. But dear Christian, we have no reason to be hopeless. Our God loves his people, and loves his son and will keep his promises. He has planned your salvation, and he has sent the man to do it. And that man right now, the God-man, reigns on high, interceding for us and will bring us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our Lord and Savior. Thank you that you've given us all your people a hope of salvation that is in Christ alone. Lord, unless I assume and presume upon 
everyone here knowing Jesus, everyone here knowing Christ. Lord, I pray that they would realize that these promises, Jesus dying on the cross to save sinners and rising from the dead to bring us new life, that him leading us into the way of peace with, yes, our neighbor, but also the peace with God, the promise of having forgiveness of sins and a knowledge of salvation, that these things belong to those who are in Christ. That Christ accomplished the salvation of his people. That we have in his word, what we're reading here is the knowledge of God's plan of salvation. A salvation that is not to be found outside of the remedy in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring everyone in this room to reflect on Christmas's connection with Israel and how all the hopes of Israel was fulfilled in Christ alone. And I pray that they would look to Christ and call on God and rest on his mercy to save them. And I pray for us in this room that we would not let the forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of salvation in God's mercy that that would not just be the beginning of our faith, but that that would sustain us all our days. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.